The Square Peg Podcast. Mold breakers, trailblazers, and takers of roads less traveled. Not all of us look the way the world expects us to look, think as the world expects us to think, or arrive at our destination the way the world expects us to. On the Square Peg Podcast, we give a voice to mold breakers, trailblazers, and takers of roads less traveled. I'm your host, Andrew Lawrence, and here are their stories. Thank you to the Searchlight Needles for getting us started as always. The hashtag needles aren't just a quartet of middle-aged, overweight, and balding El Pasos. Robert Martinez, Josh Smith, Adrian Ortiz, and David Sines are four really fantastic guys who hold down jobs and take care of families during the week, and they rock out on the weekends. You can find them on the web at www.searchlightneedles.com. You can find them on Facebook, and you can download their album on all streaming services. And now, here's a message from one of the sponsors who make this program possible. Keith Johnson, owner of Camino Tattoo Studio, has been a professional licensed tattoo artist in Las Cruces since 2000. He does everything from American traditional to photorealistic tattooing, and he works by appointment only. Email him today to get your custom tattoo. You can find him at CaminoTattooStudio.com or from the bio in the link at www.CaminoTattooStudio.com. Of course, you can also find Camino Tattoo Studio on Instagram and Facebook. And just a little personal note for me, um, turning 48 here real soon, didn't get my first tattoo until about two years ago. And um, while Keith didn't do that one, he's done three since then. And uh, I've been going through this kind of transition, you know, in my later 40s, if you will, and uh, made some changes to my fitness, to my, my supplementation and my diet. And I've seen some big changes in my body. And I'll tell you, I've never loved my body. I probably never will. But with the changes I've made and the artwork that Keith has uh, been able to put on my body, learning to hate it a little bit less every day. So if you want to be uh, like me and get some good artwork on you, give give Keith a, an email uh, and, and go get your tattoo. The Square Peg Podcast. My guest, John MacArthur, survived a traumatic injury as a toddler and served two enlistments in the United, enlistments in the United States Air Force during two foreign conflicts before ending up in Saudi Arabia, of all places, working at several different jobs. When he returned stateside, he took tourists for flights over the Grand Canyon, and now he's a movie maker. John MacArthur, thank you very much for being my guest. Welcome to the Square Peg Podcast. Hi, Andrew. Thank you for having me. How accurate was I? Did I get all that right? Uh, you got it pretty spot on. Okay. Well, that's good. I don't like to be I don't like to be incorrect or inaccurate about anything. Now, you're in Montana. Where exactly in Big Sky Country are you? I'm living in uh, Butte, Montana, uh, also known as Butte, America, uh, one of the old uh, mining towns, one of the richest cities in the world at one time for its uh, copper. Now, is that B-U-T-T-E? Uh, B-U-T-T-E. And how did you pronounce that? Butte. Okay, I thought you added a little something onto the end. I thought you pronounced the E. I thought you had said Butte. You kind of caught me off guard there. Um, how cold is it there? Oh, do you really want to know? Uh, it's, it's short weather right now. I'd say it's about 36, 37. Okay. Well, it's only going to be 60 here and 60 and sunny here where I am today in the desert. So um, I, I might have to wear a jacket anyway. Joke, joke. Um, <laughs> I've actually never been to Big Sky Country. That's one of the only parts of the country I haven't been to. Um, one of these days, I think I may have told you I'm a pretty avid or indoorsman. Um, I like nature, but I like it from the window of the car as I'm driving past it. Um, but I, I really have always wanted to visit Montana and, and Idaho and Wyoming. Um, some really picturesque things. You deal with bears out there? Oh yeah. Yeah, uh, definitely. And it, it is absolutely picturesque. I think you and I both, I hadn't been to Montana before I got 
a job flying for uh, Life Flight here, which, you know, you're talking about those incredible views, trying to do it from the air. Um, I, yeah, I just recently found out, even in my uptown area of Butte, which just looks, you look out the window, it looks like a city. Uh, yeah, we got grizzlies that are just over the hill there, and, you know, they, they say they migrate towards us, but really we're, we're the outsiders. But, yeah, yeah, you got to be on the lookout for uh, all, all those uh Animals. You know, they say that the the ocean belongs to the sharks, and I do believe that nature where you do, where you live belongs to the grizzlies, and they can have it. I will be very happy just to see pictures of them. You know, I just had the thought: um, Does Big Sky Brewing still around? Uh, I do. Yes, it is. I used to. They used to have a Scotch ale. I used to be really into Scotch ales. I believe it was called Heavy Horse, and I think they stopped making it. It's so weird. I just literally just thought about that. When I said something about living in big sky country. So, now you're not from Montana, right? Uh, no, sir. Where did you grow up? Uh, see, I was uh, born and raised, and there'll be a reason, uh, in Northern California, in Santa Rosa, California. And later, uh, in the late 80s, when I was in high school, they uh, sold the property and moved to Hawaii. Okay. Um, now, where was it that you, you know, one of the first things I learned about you was that you 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 suffered a really some severe burns uh, as a as a toddler? Take take me through that. Absolutely, uh, yeah. So just uh, just a little bit over one years old, and uh, I was in Santa Rosa at the time. This is uh, early seventies, mid seventies, and uh, I was left with my babysitter so that my parents could go out and. Uh, Really, the best that they could get was when they had returned, the babysitter had me uh, basically wrapped up in a in a sheet, and I wasn't moving or making any noise or anything like that, and uh, I had suffered third-degree burns across most of my body. Um, so my parents immediately had to take me to the emergency room. Uh, I don't remember any of this. I don't remember the, the trauma of it. I'm sure it was just too much for a little kid to handle. Uh, but I was told that I was in the, the hospital and in uh, ICU for, for a very long time and in the, uh, the recovery area, the burn recovery area for, for months. I, as a toddler, I had to relearn how to walk and everything else once I got out of the hospital. How did the, now tell me how this, how this happened. Was it, it was, were you burned with water or? Yeah, yeah. It's it's a it's a questionable story at best, and I, I I bring it up to my parents, and and it's I get kind of the short end of it. Uh, it, it, it may very well have been an accident to uh, an abusive situation. They they don't really know. This was the seventies. Um, How old was the babysitter? I, uh, I believe she was uh, late teens, early twenties. Okay, and you, you, um, do you have any idea? Was it a? Was it? A, I, I'm going to hope that it was investigated, um, by law enforcement. I, I really don't believe it was at the time. Um, you know, she said it was an accident. Uh, it was really apologetic, but I, I've I've gotten different stories. I've talked to my sister, and she gets, I guess, more details. And apparently, I had a, uh, a fractured fractured skull as well. So that doesn't jive unless I fell really hard onto the ground. But as a one-year-old, you know, yeah, it bounced pretty well. Yeah, you know, the 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 common sense part of me, and you know, I think I explained to you what I do for a living, and a good a good majority of of my caseload the last few years has actually involved crimes against children, and I've I have actually investigated um, uh, burn cases, and they're they're not as easy to decipher as you might think. I just it, the 
for the life of me, I can't understand how if you can if you have third degree burns all over your body and a fractured skull, how law enforcement didn't get involved and um you know, I don't know whatever happened to the babysitter. I hope she never babysat you again. Um but it's actually really impressive to me that you can suffer that type of injury over that much of your body to the point where you have to learn how to walk again and actually go grow up and, and have the physical fitness and, and capabilities of serving in the military. Now, did you play sports as a kid? Uh, yeah, I, uh, I was an avid baseball player all the way from uh, the, the peewees all the way through high school. Okay, and you said football? Uh, baseball. Baseball, okay. And so it didn't, I mean, it didn't, whatever, whatever skin grafting and, you know, there wasn't any issues with your mobility. Um, did it cause you any issues with your appearance that that gave you okay. any it, it definitely i was gonna say physically uh the physical scars are there um it's the emotional scars that you get with that or growing up in school and you know someone someone wants to play the, the cootie monster or something like that and and suddenly you know you're you're up to bat because you, you have these skin grafts so you gotta grow up with that and you kind of got to decide uh if you if you want to go surfing, you got to take your shirt. If you want to go to the public pool, you got to do these things, and you can't be afraid of how people look at you. You know, right? Um, so I'm trying to take the positive with it and say that, that it taught me to be a stronger person and, and really just go out there and and not not worry about you know other people's opinions. Yeah, you know, it's a lot more common these days, and and I'm somebody you know I'm, I'm actually at 48 years old, I'm starting to be a little bit more comfortable just kind of talking about this and admitting to some of these things. I've dealt with weight issues my whole life. And when we were young, if you wore a shirt in a swimming pool, you looked like a weirdo. Uh, and now rash guards are pretty common. And, and where I live in the desert Southwest, you have to be really careful with, with sunburns and things like that. So I would just imagine, you know, go, did, did you go swimming as a kid? I mean, was that I'm gonna say there, you know, there was times where I felt more comfortable with the shirt on um, and and not getting the looks. And 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 honestly, as a kid, you look back as an adult, and I think there's a lot more empathy than than maliciousness, you know, in the looks. But just to be looked at differently, you know, you just don't want to do it. So better to put on the shirt. So there was that. But I, I know that I, I remember there was a defining point in my life where I said like. Either I'm going to be worried or embarrassed by others, or I'm just going to live my life. That sounds pretty empowering, actually. Uh, you know, I, I don't wish anything like that on anybody, and I, being overweight or anything, I, I really do try to walk through life with the, uh, the, the, the least amount of trail behind, you know, just trying to empower people and, and not, not treat them differently if they don't want to be treated different, um, and just let them live. And I, you get an understanding of that by going through it. That's that is interesting. Now, what made you decide? Take me to the, the thought process of deciding to enlist. Uh, why did you enlist, and why did you choose the Air Force? Uh, well, I think I was always going to enlist. I, I was looking for the adventure. Uh, I was confronted by all the I call it confronted confronted by all the recruiters uh, with their own uh, methods of, of of getting you on board. The, the Marines, I, I, I wasn't having that. I wasn't looking out to, to, to be a big man or anything. Uh, the Navy maybe showed up with pizza. Um, the, the Air Force, I, I looked at it as I can, I can delay entry and become an aircraft mechanic, and then that would be a career that if I don't like the military, I can carry on in the future. So the Air Force was kind of the, the, the direction I went, and uh, I, I went in delayed entry for a year to get a position as a F-15 mechanic. You said F-18? 
F fifteen. F fifteen. Okay. Okay. Yeah, you 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 broke up a little bit there. Um, where did you end up serving? I know you you served in two foreign conflicts. You said you did about ten years, right? Uh, ten years total. Yes. Okay. And where did you got to spend some time in the UK? I know that. Yeah, I was uh, actually I I wanted to go see the world, and you know we we make our list of places we like to go, and we try to keep it realistic. And I ended up in the desert in Southern California for my first four years at Edwards Air Force Base. Uh, eventually, after that, my second term, uh, I got orders to England and got to go see Europe and, and all, all over the place out there. You know, it's funny you mentioned that being from Northern California, doing your entire first enlistment in Southern California. One of my close friends from the police academy um, grew up in Bayard, New Mexico, which is in Grant County. It's a little shit little town. There's nobody there. Um, and he, he enlisted in the U.S. Air Force and ended up getting stationed at Holloman Air Force Base in Alamogordo, which is not even a, maybe 150 miles. Um, so if, if he was looking to see, I know he spent some time actually in Kuwait um, as part of one of his one of his deployments. But it, it kind of reminded me of that funny story. Now, you got to live in the U.K. Where else did you go? Uh, I was OK. So Edwards for four years. Then I went to uh, RAF Lakenheath in the U.K. for four years. And at that time, that's one of the, the foreign conflicts, uh, Allied Force uh, with Kosovo. I was overseas, and I was sent out on a C-130 at 2 o'clock in the morning in the dark uh, with my go bag uh, out to an unknown location. And we ended up on the coast of Italy, and so I ended up directly involved in the conflict. So even when my enlistment came up to an end, uh, I was stop-lost, meaning the, for anybody that doesn't understand if you're in a conflict or if you're in any kind of situation and your enlistment comes up to an end, they have the right to hold you until that conflict is over. And so with that, oh, sorry. No, no, go. Keep going. And with that, uh, when I got back to the U.K., I extended and went to uh, Mountain Home, Idaho for my last two years. Okay, now you... you um I find it very interesting. You know, I, I have a degree in history, and then, you know, I've, I've spent my last 23-plus whatever years uh, in public safety. I really don't have any skills. <laughs> when I say that, I mean I don't have a trade or a vocation. I've, I've never been good with my hands, and I'm not inclined, you know, to do such things. Um, I've always find it not, not envious of, but I, I admire people who have that skill because you can, like you said, you know, go in and, and, and get that skill, and if you don't want to spend the rest of your life in the military – You've got a really well-paying job for the rest of your life. Now, are you somebody who's always been uh, mechanically inclined or inclined to do do things with your hands and fix, thing, fix things and build things? Yeah, I, yeah, I think if we, if we categorize people between um, if I understand how something works, then I don't have to memorize it. And then you have rote memory people where they can memorize useless information but they can memorize it and i have always been mechanically inclined. if you show me how a hydraulic system works or if you show me why there's a valve somewhere i don't have to learn it again um so yeah i when i did when i did uh took the test for the asvab that that was the main attraction for most of the branches talking to me was uh the the mechanics or right now um would there be anything else to work on i guess i mean i guess all the branches if you have motor vehicles you have cars and trucks you have to have somebody who who, who can fix them. But um, would you say that, that being an airplane mechanic is probably a little bit more, probably a, a more sought-after skill and probably gives you more earning potential in the private sector than, than anything else? Uh, yeah, absolutely. There's a, a huge markup for, for 
what you would make as an aircraft mechanic. Unfortunately, I ended up in the fighter jet uh, department rather than the cargo jets, so that was kind of a problem. And towards my end of my time at uh, Mountain Home, I had started working with the, uh, the airport just off the base and working towards my aircraft and uh, power plant licenses because my uh, certificates from the military transferred over to credit for uh, being a mechanic. So really all I had to do was do the, the written and the practicals. Unfortunately, I got through the written, and then I saw that job. I saw a job for a, a contractor in Saudi Arabia and took that and did finish up the uh, airframe power plant. Now, it is, you know, we talk about learning this skill and then, you know, having a job for the rest of your life if you want one once you get out into the private sector, but you actually have not made your living as an airplane mechanic. You're actually flying them. In I, in if, my, if I had an opinion for anybody that's going through flight school or thinking about becoming a pilot, I didn't plan it, but it is the absolute best way to progress through the career field. You start out as a mechanic, you understand the systems, you understand what's happening while you're flying, you understand what could possibly be wrong or what, what normally is wrong. Uh, you can react better to emergencies and situations. And so I am flying helicopters now because I went on a ride for my 30th birthday and decided to do that. But it was being a mechanic was instrumental in, in helping me understand and get through a lot of the, the, the coursework I had to. Now, how did you decide, though? How did you decide that you wanted to become a pilot? <laughs> it was that helicopter ride. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm, always, I'm always enthused with uh, new things like, you know, cars, the, the, the crab, or anything like that. And I, when we got in that helicopter and it picked up into a hover and just kind of started hovering sideways and then took off from nowhere, I was like, I need to know how to do this now. Like right away. And you learned how to do it. How long did it take to get your full license? Well, I was married with children at the time. I was also working, uh, another another bonus is uh, I was working on the airport at a fixed base operator, uh, towing their jets, fueling them, and, and doing all your, your regular maintenance on, on people's private jets. Uh, that helped afford being able to go to school while I had my family. I just had to, I had to split my time into three, four, five different things uh, in order to get it done. And I think it took me in, in about a year a year and a half, maybe. I find it really interesting. And, you know, we, we talked the other day, and, and, and it makes complete sense when you explain to me why in Saudi Arabia you have the Red Crescent and not the Red Cross. But how do you end up um, living and working in Saudi Arabia? Because you weren't there. You, you didn't never got deployed there uh, while you are in the service, right? Uh, I was deployed. So, yeah, three, three different times and three different jobs there. I was deployed out to... Uh, and for any of you listeners uh, that have been to Saudi Arabia, ever been based at Prince Sultan Air Base, there'll be a small bridge over a, a, a trench that goes out to the Chow area. I built that back in uh, 2000, maybe even before that. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I was deployed out there and really bored, so I built a bridge. Uh, after I got out of the military, when you're in the out-processing area, the office for that, they usually have a bunch of clipboards for people getting out of the military jobs, opportunities. And there's always one that sits there with the uh, overseas contractor, uh, weapons, munitions people, this and that, working in the Middle East. And none of us have any familiarity with like the, the civilian world of living in the Middle East. So 
obviously I just jumped right in on that one. Um, I became a contractor working in Saudi Arabia with the Saudi Arabian Air Force on their F-15s, and then later came back as a life flight pilot for the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and their, their Red Crescent program. And so you're, but you're not, you're not medically trained, right? I mean, you're literally just flying the plane. You're not providing service. Yeah, no, we don't, we're not there to, we're just there to compartmentalize and get you onto a highway and get you off of that highway into a hospital or get you from your home location that's out in the middle of nowhere and get you to a hospital or transport between hospitals. Uh, They work in the back and I I, honestly, I, I, this is the best way for me to get back because if I, I couldn't do what they do back there. Right. Now, are you talking, is this a fixed wing or are you flying helicopters? Flying helicopters. I'm wondering, yeah, uh, in your job, we must have been at least in the same situations, you know, maybe not the same locations, but as uh, first responders. Yeah, you know, you know, it's funny you mention that. The, and I worked in the traffic division for five years. I've, I've been on, you know, my share of accident scenes. Uh, and seen, you know, lots of mangled bodies. But oddly enough, the worst, when I say the worst, the, the total, the, the, in regards to the number of people who were killed, the actually the worst wreck I've ever come upon was, was off duty. We, we live about four, a four hour drive east of Tucson. And the first time I'd gone to Tucson with my wife to see a concert, went our way back. And oddly enough, it was, remember when the Ford Explorers were having all the tire problems and somebody coming the other way had, had flipped their car and it ended up being a triple fatality. And, um, I kind of got out on that scene, but yeah, I've, you know, you and I have seen a lot of the kind of the, some of the same stuff. Now, when you're, were, were you going to those types of scenes as a, as a helicopter pilot medevac, were you going to car accidents and, and, and critical incidents like that? Uh, absolutely. And it was a uh, trial by fire because my first contract was working overseas, which is nothing like we, we are way more organized and way more, uh, uh, diplomat about how we do things. And over there, it's, uh, you know, we fly out to the middle of nowhere. We have a, a, a napkin with pencil drawings of where antennas and mountains are because we don't have night vision goggles and we're flying out in the desert and you can't see anything. So uh, definitely a trial by fire. Once I got back to the States, all the regulations, on uh, you can't fly if this visibility or you should be wearing night vision, that, that changed my world for me. Yeah, that's, I find, I, you know, I've been in helicopters. There was a time, you know, many years ago where uh, I was part of a, part of a specialty unit at my, at my agency where U.S. Customs flew us around in their Blackhawks and, and, um, I found that, found that kind of cool. You know, it's interesting thing is I, I actually have a fear of heights and I've been riding on airplanes since I was a little kid. To me, the closer to the ground you are, the more, the more scared I get because it's more realistic, if you will. Like being in an airplane 30,000 feet in the air and looking out the window never bothered me. And I actually, Took a trip, uh, you know, obviously clipped in, safety clipped in, but in a Blackhawk with my legs hanging out the side of it um, to a training facility, you know, on a 45-minute flight. I thought that was really neat. And, you know, I don't – we went on a uh, – my wife and I were in Hawaii in 2006, and we went to one of those things where they try to sell you a timeshare, and then you get all mm-hmm. these gifts – you get these gifts afterwards – well, at that time, I had I had been in helicopters and I had been flying commercial my whole life. We we got a voucher for it, we didn't have enough money. We didn't they did, it, it was more expensive to do a, a helicopter ride, but we ended up going on a small I don't know how ten passenger plane uh, around the Big Island of Hawaii. And I'm somebody who'd been again been flying in, in commercially my whole life. At this time, fifteen years ago, what am I? My mid thirties, you know, early thirties. 
And within a couple of minutes of that plane taking off, I was just about ready to yell at the pilot because he needed to turn around because there just wasn't the power and it's not the same feeling. And I was literally, I was about to yell at the pilot and then my wife grabs my leg because she's terrified. And I'm like, shit, now I've got to be a man. <laughs> I've got to be the man. <laughs> and we ended up, you know what? After 10 minutes, I, I got used to it. We actually flew over an active volcano. Um, first time I'd ever seen Earth that was younger than I was. And, and it was a fantastic thing. But you ended up um, going from medevac to doing tourist flights. Uh, yeah, because the... Well, the, the overseas contract, how did I end up over there was, you know, originally I took the first job, uh, first contract being an F-15 mechanic. When I saw the job come up for working with their uh, Saudi Red Crescent, uh, basically my cover letter stated that I've already been to the Middle East. I know you're going to lose half of your pilots on the first hitch. Um, I know what I'm in for, and I'm in for the long haul. Uh, so you can count on me. And basically they got right back to me because they do know that it's, it's rough for someone that hasn't been there before, and typically they can't handle it and, and, and check out. So I ended up over there flying that contract, but also my company was out of Abu Dhabi in the UAE. So when we were there doing visas and stuff like that, I was flying offshore uh, out of Dubai and flying the uh, offshore oil out there as well. So, but you, you've done these Grand Canyon tours too, right? Absolutely, absolutely. What happened was uh, overseas contracting is not good for marriages or relationships. Go figure. Um, if, any, if anybody doesn't know that, here you know now. Let me just tell you. Um, so, yeah, I needed to get back stateside. And so I, I, I did that. The contract was starting to, to go to another, uh, another company. So I took that opportunity to just put my notice in. And once I got back to the States, I went over to the, uh, Las Vegas and interviewed with the Grand Canyon companies and got picked up by uh, one of the companies out there doing the tours. Which is not surprising, but of all the flying I've done, High altitude, uh, high temperatures in Montana to the, the blackness of the deserts of Saudi. The scariest place I've ever flown is the Grand Canyon. Why is that? There, I, at least when I was flying, there's about five companies. And we don't take off in groups, I, not much greater than, than eight, if we have a full group. And so they, they go in scheduled groups, 730, the, 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 every time you know we pick up our guys and fly out there and then come back and then reload and do it again. Sunsets are usually the worst because every company wants to be out there and returning on the sunset. No one wants to be there in the dark, and no one wants to be there during the day. You have five companies and eight. You're talking about you know upwards of 30 to 40 helicopters trying to fly in one area of the Grand Canyon, all doing their own separate areas and things like that, with some of the newest pilots that you'll ever see come out of uh, having their pilot license. So... You learn, and if you don't end up in an incident, then you survived it, and now you know where people are going to come from. And it's so busy in there, you can't even make a radio call. And don't I mean? Do you do these tourist flights have flight plans? They they do, and each company will have their own. Like, hey, we're going to fly at twenty five hundred along the cliff here, and then we're going to descend down here. And we do we are aware of those. And every once in a while, a new company would come in and just do something different, and we'd see a helicopter where we didn't expect it. So I'm like, well, what's he doing over there? And trying to get him on frequency, but everybody's trying to talk over the radio, so it's just squelching. Um, so yeah, they do have their own routes. Some of them did their own. 
but there's just so many of them. And then trying to get out of the canyon, and they're all taking off on their own little areas, and we're all trying to get into the same formation and flying back to uh, Vegas. It's you know you gotta you gotta know what you're doing. Well, did you ever? I mean, you're still here with us. Have you ever had any close calls? It seems to me like. And it's got to be, you know, when I was a kid, my dad was a highway safety engineer, and, and I have a sister who was very afraid of flying, and he'd always try to explain to her that flying in a plane uh, is a lot safer than being in a car, and that the way they measure how safe something is is the number of deaths or number of accidents per million miles traveled. Um, I understand that air travel, no matter how you're doing it, is is very safe, but it also seems like, you know, once a year you hear of one of these private medevac or these private tourist planes going down. Um, did you ever have any close calls? Did you ever have any mechanical issues that you had to deal with or ever have to, you know, put the thing down in the middle of the Grand Canyon because there was an issue? Any, anything like that? Uh, through my time in the Grand Canyon, there were several of several of my friends. I, le- I think I left out with the, the better helicopters, but I, uh, I never had to make a precautionary landing. Uh, which is, it can be deadly out there when it's 120 degrees. Um, I did in Montana, though. I was coming into one of these hospitals, and you were talking about the not having enough power. Uh, it was hot. We were heavy. We were coming into a high-altitude uh, location. And a lot of these designers for helipads like to surround them with really high trees. That makes sense. Yeah, you know, it's never it's never the easy way to get into any hospital. If you look at their flight path, it's always against the wind or something. Um, but I was coming in on approach to this, and our throttle on our collective, and this is a you know pilots will agree, or at least helicopter pilots will agree. When you know when it's a rough ride, when you're you're pushing on both of your foot pedals as hard as you can, you can feel it in your calves and your your death grip and your uh, throttle. And I'm coming in on approach, and I'm watching my powers and everything. And the detent for the throttle hadn't set completely. So as I'm lowering the collective to go down, I'm slowly rolling the throttle up too, and I don't realize it because now I'm looking outside the, the aircraft, and I'm only about 30 foot above the, the helipad. And suddenly the horns, the low rotor RPM horn starts going, the lady starts screaming, you know, low rotor, low rotor. And I, 20 foot from the ground as it just starts descending into the ground into its own wash. And, you know, I've got my, my crew in the back, and I feel the throttle. I'm like, oh, and I roll it just gently back into the, the lock position. And just as we're settling down, the, the, the RPM caught up, and, and we, we set down safely. Uh, that, was, that was, yeah, that was a white knuckler. Definitely a white knuckler. And if you'd have, well, yeah, it was a white knuckler. We'll just leave it at that. But you're not flying anymore. You're a movie maker. Uh, well, <laughs> or a budding or an aspiring movie maker. As, as dangerous as, as helicopter flying in the EMS world uh, up in this mountainous area with grizzly bears and everything, uh, my demise was the ice in between my office and the helicopter one night going to get my helmet, and I slipped and burst my T3 vertebrae, and that was about a year ago. Ouch. Yeah. No, you know, the ouch part was having to explain to your friends. They're like, oh, my God, what happened? Were you skydiving? Were you on a motorcycle? I'm like, no, I was walking. You slipped on the ice and broke your ass or your back. Broke my my back. And so, well, take me through this this year of of you being, you know, kind of on medical leave and and having to have your job held for you and surgery, physical therapy. How did that all go? 
after talking and I, I do hang out with a lot of skydivers and surfers and stuff like that. And they said, if you can avoid surgery, avoid surgery. And as soon as my doctor was on board with that, um, I had a back brace for three weeks, four weeks, and I had to sleep in it and everything else. Uh, once that came off, then it was just pretty, pretty bad back pain of coming from that, that, that one area. Uh, I had also broke a rib on the fall. So that, that eventually healed. Uh, once everything healed and uh, I got the okay from the doctor, I did try to return to work. I went back uh, and tried to do some training in Spokane, Washington. Unfortunately, on the night flights, especially with the night vision goggles, they they have a good two pounds of weight that leverages your head forward to make your head go down. And you can get counterweights to fix that, but that just puts more weight, weight on your neck. Uh, that's where I found the problem. I could get about 30 minutes into a flight, but that forcing of the head down was straining whatever was going on in the vertebrae. Um, so I had to go back and, and stop flying and, and wait for it to heal some more. You know, I, I hate to tell you this. Um, you know, I had, I had a really badly, uh, herniated L4-5 that I had surgery on about five and a half years ago. And, what you realize is I, I, it took, I had about four years without any problems, but what they say is when you have back surgery, it's not the end of your back problems. It is just the beginning. Um, and I certainly hope that's not the case with you. Um, so so how, how did you get into making movies? <laughs> so, yeah, with, the, with the, the, the broken back and cabin fever and nothing else on Netflix, Hulu, or anything else to watch, uh, I had some friends that were working on a local web series, a Montana-based web series, and they were going to do some photo shoots of their characters or some promo shoots. Um, I tagged along with them, um, went to this. I met the director and all those guys. They got their pictures done, and then they had mentioned a scene as a, a character in one of the roles in, that they hadn't filled yet, and they explained it to me, and I said, sure, I'll, I'll, I'll do that. It's got nothing else to do. Um, so with the back and check and with that limitation in mind, uh, went out and, and filmed the scenes for the, the TV show. The, the director there had posted another movie that was coming back and they were looking for extras as, uh, mercenaries for, for one of these action films. So I got picked up for that with uh, the old military experience and everything else and ended up on the set for that movie. Uh, beyond that, uh, my only connections between in, in the film world were the guys that I had met on the set there. And my, my dad, when they moved to Hawaii, he was a welder and he was in the Coast Guard as an underwater welder. He got picked up because they needed underwater welders for uh, water worlds back in the 90s. And so he got on as a uh, underwater welder. Then he got into the unions, got into SAG and continue to work in the industry. So I've always seen the behind-the-scenes, or as he puts it, the Morlock uh, side of, of Hollywood and the, the behind-the-scenes of the sets and stuff like that. So intriguing, but I, I was on a different, completely different career path uh, until I broke my back. And I, I had the same thought as you. It's like, it's not, it, I'm, or I'm, I'm 48 as well, and how much longer is it going to be good before it's not? Am I going to get hired again? If I mentioned I broke my back, am I going to have to be just, you know, deceptive about this stuff because they don't need to know. And so I started thinking about my, my career and my life and, and everything. And I love, I love flying. I love help, helping people. And this opportunity with, uh, I, I have a script and I love this town, uh, the town of Butte and it's, 
they don't even realize how interesting they are here. If you go into any location, anyone's house or any bar here, and you just mention ghosts or spirits, in every place someone has a story where they're working in the basement and there's a little girl on it. They're usually really specific. Um, and we have one little spirit in particular named Tess. And uh, that's where the, the, the script launched from, um, was from the idea of her and that this town that just kind of gets along with everybody, <laughs> with all the spirits in this town and everything. And so is this like a paranormal thing? Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a, there's a lot of actual Butte history to, to establish what this city was, uh, even back in the late 1800s. The, the place I'm talking to you from right now, I'm, I'm renting the third story of an old Victorian um, that was here, and it was built in 1886. And so when I look out my window here, I just think, there was someone standing in this window before the Wright brothers launched off a of Kitty Hawk. And now I watch my air ambulance helicopter doing its approach into a hospital, and I think the, the, the things this window has seen. And so you hear about the history, and yeah, pretty much everything here is haunted, and everybody just lives with them. They know them by name and stuff like that. So so you guys are actually in pre-production, right? Yes. Yes, sir. And so, I mean, like, what's the timeline? How long do we expect? You, you've got your funding secured. Yes. you got your funding secured. You've got your location. Have you cast everybody? Uh, I've no, we're, we, I've got the crews and the crews are now looking because we, we do have, uh, we have availability at the, uh, the studio here where they have an indoor three, four story, uh, sound studio where a lot of the, uh, the special effects and stuff will have to take place. And so and- I'm looking for estimates from them. My dad is a uh, special effects guy and he's got a coordinator that's got another 30 years, 40 years in Hollywood. They're both going to come over and help with the actual mechanical special effects, but everybody's going through the, the script right now and just trying to figure out timelines and budgets. Okay, now you have, uh, do you have a title? Do you have an IMDb, IMDb page yet or entry? No, 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 no. And I have a big launch. Uh, I got the timeline set up, and what, what I really want to do is launch everything on one day and try to make it an event so okay. that I get the word out to everybody. And the best, the best, uh, platform i could find was uh tiktok so I've, i'm creating what i think i, I think is a very well you know I, I was trying to figure out the analytics of, of tiktok and it, it really just seems like everybody wants to be famous and they they live at home they're they're stay at home for that and paranormal investigators and movie makers and everything else uh so yeah i devised a tiktok uh poker run challenge and I've got most of the locations for the filming uh, are, are in on it. And they're going to devise their own TikTok challenges. And you'll get a poker card for every location that you hit and do their challenge. And then we'll use that as a platform to launch the, uh, the, the production company, the idea of the movie, the everything. Now, you don't intend for this to be a feature length, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, you're going you're gonna to see it in theaters there. We're talking, I, I, and I, maybe I, I'm mistaken. We talked before. I thought you, it was going to be a shorter. We're, we're looking at ninety, you know, ninety to one hundred and twenty minutes. Absolutely, that's fantastic. And you've got your script. All, did you write the entire screenplay? I did. I did. And where did you learn how to do that? Were you a writer before? Have you ever written a screenplay? Uh no. You know what I actually pride myself on is uh, I think my whole life. I think people like me. They, they again trying to figure out how things work. You're a people watcher. You, you look at analytics and you look at algorithms of people and situations. And I'm sure in your career field, you've done that plenty of times, knowing whether a, a situation was not good or good. 
Um, I've done the same thing with movies my whole life. I've, I've watched movies, and somewhere in the back of my brain, I'm, I'm constantly picking apart going, well, okay, that's not, that doesn't flow right, or that's not right. So when it came to the writing, I, I think that the weirdest part about it is you almost become schizophrenic in the writing because you become each person, especially if they're, they're, they have really deep characters to them. And so in order to write what they would say or what they're going to do, you're literally becoming that person for a moment. And I've had to step out of this apartment just like, whoa, there's too many people in my head. So what is your, what do you expect your timeline to be uh, for this project to be finished and be in theaters? I am embracing uh, Halloween of 2024. The problem is it's a, it's a Halloween based movie. So it would have to be released on a Halloween or near um, so if I miss my window in 2024, then, well, we'll have to take 2025, but we'll try to keep everybody on track, try to keep all the, the, the sets and everything up and down and as quick as they can. And well, you so know, when, this- any, anytime I have a guest who has a, a book or a show or, a, or, or in your case, a movie, I, I always like to give them an opportunity to, to give links or titles or, 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 or social media pages to kind of plug. And it doesn't look like we're you're a little bit too early on in the process for that. Am I correct? Uh, well, yeah, yeah. And, and that really wasn't the, the, the point of, of talking. I love your show, show and I was, I was really looking forward to talking to you. Matter of fact, what I was going to say is as the, uh, the scripts are coming out, the actual printed uh, bound scripts are coming out, I'll get your address and I'll mail one off to you and, and sign a copy just in case we do become the, uh, the greatest Halloween movie ever. And uh, you'll have one of the scripts. Well, that's a pretty tall order, and I would like to think that, you know, we've been at this for about a year and a half. If I'm still doing this podcast uh, in Halloween 2024 or 2025, uh, I would love you to come back on and we can talk about your product. Maybe we can do a, mov- a movie review, uh, maybe like a Mystery Absolutely. Science mystery science 3. Uh, th- what is it? Mystery Science Theater 3000 or some shit? Did you ever watch that on, uh, on- I'm glad I'm talking to you because one of my, not a gimmick, but one of my, my ploys here uh, to show, the, honestly, the diversity of the town, even though it's this old roughneck mining town, uh, but also because when I was a kid on Saturday evenings, we would watch horror movies and they would have Elvira or Vampira or, or one of these characters that would, they would uh, host the show and talk during the commercials or whatnot. And uh, I, have a friend, I have a friend in town that uh, professionally does drag queen. And so I've spoke to him and asked him to devise a character with a nice backstory to, to be the host of these events uh, as a his his version of what he thinks Elvira would be. And so far, all I've gotten was the name. He's being pretty secretive about it, but he's going to be calling himself Betty Boo. Betty what? Betty Boo. Betty Boo. You know, it's funny you mentioned that, you know, you have this friend who does drag. My producer um used to participate there was an annual uh high heels for high hopes uh march of dimes fundraiser and everybody would would run their own fundraiser and then they would have a big event at the end and actually my producer got me and another a former dj at the studio at the radio group where i where i record uh who's actually a jeweler and was a season of mine i believe on season one or season two uh this six foot nine uh long-haired metalhead giant uh, and then another another one of the DJs here got us all to participate in this drag show, and uh, I think that was it was right before my back surgery. Actually, it was October of 2015, and um, I came up with the name Labia Majora for my for my drag name, <laughs> and I kind of thought about that on the fly, but it actually it, it flows pretty well. John MacArthur, uh, I've enjoyed talking to you. Uh, I enjoy meeting you, 
And I'm actually really looking forward to finding out what your movie's all about. And I, I, I want to keep that promise. If we're still doing this podcast um, in, in October of 2024, 2025, when your movie comes out, we're going to have you back on. Fantastic. And you know, that's going to be October. So, you know, I'm going to make the road trip down to you and go see you in person and go hang out in your 60 degree weather versus my uh, minus 20. Well, uh, you're, you're, you are welcome to come visit anytime. Don't come here in the spring because it's windy for three months. Uh, and you may not want to deal with 105 degrees in the summer. October, November is the best time. You're welcome to come anytime. John MacArthur, thank you for being on my show. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, this is the Square Peg Podcast. I want you to thank you for, I want to thank you for listening. We will see you next time on the Square Peg Podcast where we interview mold breakers, trailblazers, and takers of roads less traveled. Hey, if you are having a wedding uh, and you need a photographer or videographer, if you are a local artist in the southern New Mexico or West Texas area and you uh, need a video, a music video made, uh, a real good place to go is my, my friend Isaac Palafox's business, Palomore Productions. Uh, they're located pretty close to Las Cruces downtown. And uh, you can find them on Facebook. You can find them on Instagram and all those different places. Uh, you can also get them at uh, www.palamora.com for all your weddings, music videos, and anything else you need a professional videographer or photographer. Proudly produced by LasCrucesToday.com and Bravo Mike Communications.